welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hi. Go first. Hi, everybody. I'm Craig, psychologist from Phoenix. Let me start off with a prayer. Dear God, be with us here today. Let our hearts be open. Let our souls be willing. Let us seek to know your truth. Help us to realize how much your love for us does shine. And let us be gracious in that. Hi, my name is Roy. I'm a sexaholic. Uh, Roy K. sends his apologies that he couldn't be with us. And instead, Roy Colton is here. The persona doesn't exist. So please, uh, I beg of you, I'm just another sex drunk. Uh, don't make it hard on me by treating me special. I'm not special. I come in weakness and uh, in gratitude. I see all you people. To uh, be able to be here for those who are uh, somewhat serious about recovery. Is it too loud back there in the end, in the back? You can hear okay? Excellent. So, uh, five women from Baltimore? <laughs> wonderful. We certainly need more women in our groups. And so it's a wonderful thing. Do any Essanons here? No Essanons. Okay, we're all essays? Okay. Um... How many of you here were in Crystal City when Iris and I were here? Wow. How long ago was that? What year was that? 96. And uh, as far as Iris and I are concerned, that was the high point of our traveling together for SA. And uh, we'll never forget that. And uh, we are personally grateful as we communicated to Jeff last year for the support, uh, all kinds of support that you gave in the in last year, and uh, that means a lot. I don't know what the announcement was about this meeting. Uh, this is a surrender workshop, interactive workshop, surrender accountability. Um, as you know, in 1998, in Cranford, New Jersey, it was the first time I spoke about the historic origin of the surrender process in Akron, Ohio, in 1935. And that was an awakening to me because I had read Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. How many have read at all into the book, Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers? Wonderful. I'd read it when it came out and just kind of dismissed it as really interesting stuff, but then in 98, when I read it again, I was abs- absolutely stunned 
with the applicability. I said we've got to try to uh, see how we can translate that original fire into a need for less recovery. Anyhow, um, I uh, want to start by uh, <laughs> saying something about uh, my wife gave me this before I left, and he wrote, she wrote on it, to be opened on Saturday. And I asked her what it was, and she says, you know, I, I couldn't tell. And was it a message you're giving somebody? And she says, no, just don't open it. She wouldn't tell me what it was. That was yesterday, Saturday, yesterday. Today's Sunday, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, so 5.30 yesterday morning, I opened it. And uh, this is what it was. She's never done this before. Anyhow, it's a letter. Oh, by the way, this was an amaryllis that bloomed, and so she painted this. Uh, the amaryllis are just beautiful. They, they grow about two or three inches a day, and they're wonderful blooms. And uh, I've got, uh, it's embarrassing for me to read this. It's a, love it's a love letter, but I either read it verbatim or over nothing. And that's the best way I can start by telling my story. But anyhow... May 4th, 2002, that's the key date. And so yesterday was the 4th of May. Forty years ago today, a handsome Armenian prince walked into the First National Bank of Newport News, Virginia, and approached my teller window and inquired about buying a cashier's check. After a short conversation and his purchase, he left. Part of me left with him, and I have never been the same. What a life we have had. I wouldn't change a thing. Thank you for all that you were, are, and will be. Love, Iris. I mean, for her to write, I wouldn't change a thing, is incredible. Because in Crystal City, when she was standing next to me, and I told some of the stuff I had done, confessed it to the group, for the first time, some of the bad stuff that and uh, you all heard it. You knew what I was like. Uh, what it was like. And uh, I won't go into that today. But this is a miracle of God's grace. I'm not the person. I walked into that bank. When I walked into that bank, I was wearing my dancing shoes with tassels. They were blue suede shoes. They were my favorite shoes. They were my pickup shoes. Yeah, I felt I was... Uh, God's great gift to women, I think. And inside, I was so... The lie was that inside, I really knew I was a misshapen cripple from birth. That whose self-hatred had become terminal to such an extent that I had to keep drugging it out of existence because the pain of seeing myself in the mirror and just glimpsing on occasion... What I was really like inside was too too awful to bear. And um, and the worst years of our recovery, the worst years, I'm sorry, the worst years of our marriage were the first two or three years in my current recovery. Where I've been off the pills, the alcohol, and the sex, and was 
discovering what lust was. And the naked Roy was out there. And that was that we were getting divorced every week. It was very, very difficult for her. And that's when, after a year and a half of sobriety, I went back out there and she kicked me out. Uh, so what a life we have had. And, uh, you know, as we approach, as we get older, we tend to look back on it. And, man, the last 21 years have been an incredible journey. Incredible journey. And uh, can I say that I wouldn't change a thing? No, I can't say that. Because there are amends I can never make directly. But I just thank God uh, that it's not what it used to be. And um, that puts me in the frame of mind of where I am today. You've got to know where I am today. Okay, is long gone. My desire today only, to the best of my knowledge, is to be where he is working today in lives. I don't want to be anywhere else. I don't want to be just in some organization or anything else. I want to be where lives, where God is working in lives. And I want to be where those lives are so helpless and hopeless that they've come to see their powerlessness and they're reaching out and they're desperate for another solution. And so I'm going to be me today. And uh, uh, I'm not, I, I've got to be me, just as I am. And so if that's inappropriate for some of you, that's, I have no offense. I mean, uh, and you can walk out. Uh, you know, you don't have to stay. Uh, Craig can take over. <laughs> Either that or I'll walk out. But anyhow, uh, I'm very, very uh, fortunate to have Craig uh, with me in several, several of these workshops. And uh, I wouldn't think of doing this by myself anymore. I tried it in the beginning, but now that we're seeing a little better what's happening and how it's working, especially in Phoenix, uh, uh, it would be dishonest for me to do this without it. And yesterday I felt, I was asking, how'd you like to do DC alone? <laughs> and uh, I felt that washed out. But I'll be better. Uh, and uh, Now, in Akron, Ohio, is where our program was born. It wasn't New York City. They went back to New York after Bob got sober and after they got a few of their drunks sober, right? Then he went back and the program was born there. And um, I'm going to start by, this is Sunday. This is Sunday. We're in the church. And what was given to me this morning was a passage that I want to share because I can just briefly recap my story around it. Uh, in those early meetings, only alcoholics who had surrendered to God were allowed to meet together. As you know, there was a sniffer outside the door, and if you had alcohol in your breath, you couldn't get in there. So only people who had made a surrender, an unconditional surrender to God, in the presence of other alkies could attend. And often, uh, Bob, this was the living room of T. Clarence, T. Clarence Williams' house, T. Henry and his wife, Clarice, uh, in, Akron, Ohio, in Akron, Ohio. It's a large home. They were Oxford groupers. They weren't alcoholics. And um, often Bob would uh, read a passage of Scripture and then comment on it. 
And I was given something this morning that I would like to then briefly base my story on and bear witness to, because I think it is so meaningful. Uh, there remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God. The context of this is the Sabbath rest, the seventh-day creation rest. The, the context is the cosmic, the rest of God. There's something in here the writer is trying to tell, tell me. So he says there's, there remains, there's left over, there is a rest to the people of God. For he that's entered into this rest has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us strive, therefore, to enter into that rest. That's been the striving my entire life. And I could never find it. Let us strive, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of my heart. The noise in my head when I got sober and off of all the stuff was so bad, I couldn't, when they told me to meditate, I couldn't do it. Five minutes and my mind would be racing and I'd be crazy with lust or whatever. That was just an indication that uh, there was something wrong. There was a disturbance on the inside. Today, at the Holiday Inn, having breakfast, I had to plug my ears from the music because <laughs> I've chosen to live in, uh, in an environment that is free of the world spirit that, that's in my life that's around us today. If the temperature gets too bad, are you guys okay with the temperature? Everybody okay? That's a little warm. Okay. Uh, whoever, anyone can, uh, who's ever in charge, they can keep it going. <laughs> okay. Um, The key to my entering the rest, the little rest that I have today, is in having the thoughts and intents of my heart discerned and known. The biggest problem I have in recovery is knowing what's inside here, because I've been running from it from all my life. And uh, with sponsors, I only, they only hear what I tell them. But when I'm in a circle of men, week after week, who are working with somebody else toward a surrender, they know the thoughts and intents of my heart. <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> when it says the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that never worked for me. You know, this was written before there was any Bible. This passage in Hebrews was written before there was any Bible. So what is the Word of God? For me today, the Word of God is the word through those who know me, who can help me see and discern the thoughts and intents of my heart, because I'm lost without that. The last surrender I made in my circle was the fact, a discovery that I just made this year, of my manipulation of people. Now, that's an evil trait. And I discovered it, and uh, so once I made that surrender, 
The last time I manipulated my wife, I had immediately just, it caught, caught me immediately that I was manipulating her by just the, she, she's such a beautiful person, just the suggestion of something and she'd say, let me do it. And I knew I could do that and so I pressed that button and she reacted and I saw myself doing it. So my surrender, my bringing it to the light of others and making that surrender gave me an attitude of surrender so that my defect, my sin could be revealed. And that's how I enter the rest of God. I enter the rest of God by, by, by seeing what's wrong in me and surrendering it and uh, finding the joy of, of his salvation in that defect and the joy of being free to know myself. So, anyhow, um, what I'd like to do is uh, uh, give Craig a chance to tell his story before we get started here on our workshop. Is that okay with you, Craig? Okay. And Craig, uh, in his story, I mean, he can tell you what's happening in a very practical way and uh, get us right off the, off the bat on what's happening in, uh, in the Phoenix Circle. Thanks for uh, inviting me to D.C. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, some brief history about myself. I uh, sobered up in Alcoholics Anonymous in 1984 at the age of 22, and I've gone to 12-step meetings ever since. So I'm pretty familiar with how the 12-step process, in theory, was supposed to work. Um, when I hit SA, I had 13 years of sobriety in AA, and an incredibly large secret life that nobody knew about, except a couple of my AA cronies who also had an incredibly large secret life. <laughs> so as long as you're not the only one doing it, I guess it's all right or something. I don't know. But I I was so confused. I was so... I mean, I was sponsoring half a dozen to a dozen people. I mean, I, I was going to meetings every day. I read the big book. I knew how to quote it. And I go to a meeting and, you know, 449 acceptance is the key. Sound beautiful. I was, I was. It was breathtaking. And um, I had to sponsor with the most sobriety, which is important. Okay, that's that's the key right there. Well, I talked to my sponsor, and you know, he said this. Oh, okay. And sometimes I had, and sometimes I hadn't. But the key was they thought I had. So that's that's the important thing. So I learned how to play the game. Um, but I lost one essential thing, and that was honesty. Image became more important than honesty. How you looked at me was very important to me. My ego got wrapped up in that. And so when I started acting out, I, I couldn't summon the honesty to go to someone in humility. First of all, because I really enjoyed it, and it did something for me. And, and, and second of all, is I just should know better. And for years, through the height of my acting out in AA, I kept saying you should know better. So I kept trying to fix myself by going to more meetings, sponsoring more people, almost becoming uh, uh, really intensive. I, I would grab a newcomer after a meeting and get their number and call them. I wouldn't say call me. I say, are you going to be home tomorrow? Oh, yeah, why? Okay, what time are you going to be home? Seven? Okay, I'm calling you. I mean, that's how intense that was. 
I was just, you know, I got to work this thing harder because this isn't doing it. And and there came a point where I just, the thing that had saved my life in 1984, and it, and it had, wasn't working for me anymore. And I was confused, but yet still unwilling to be totally honest. Well, I went to a counselor, and and she uh, asked me a few questions, and we talked back and forth a few times, and she decided that I needed to do more chores around the house. <laughs> it didn't didn't work, but she had some insight to say, you know, you're out of my league. I don't really know, but I know this one guy, so she gave me his number. And right at the first, you know, hop and you're acting out, well, you know, all the time. Well, what are you doing? Well, I'm seeing prostitutes. And, well, how are you paying for it? Well, I kind of handle cash at my job, and so I kind of, you know, take some now and then. You know, I had this whole embezzling money to pay for that and balancing. And he's like, you got a problem. And then he mentioned a couple of programs that I had never heard of, SA and SAA. And I went to SAA for a few months and I don't know, just going to meetings again. Then I went to SA and heard the problem, problem and the solution, and it just really struck with me. I mean, boom! It's like this, this is this is it. I have this is I have arrived. I have absolutely arrived. And that first night, I, I got the only guy in Phoenix really with any sobriety. Phoenix, when I when I hit Phoenix in '98, there were three meetings and the average attendance is about five people a meeting. And Phoenix has two and a half to three million people. Okay. So I, I grabbed the only guy that had sobriety, and I'm like, oh, he must be doing something right. And I, I got him to be my sponsor. And I, I was at the point where I knew I didn't know anything. You see? I was able to be totally honest. And I'm like, I don't know anything. I, I These steps, I'm just clueless. I, I don't know. Just please teach me. Walk me through this. And I, I left AA for a while. And I quit sponsoring people, and I quit going to meetings, and I quit playing the big shot. I just had to walk away from that for a while so I can be a snivelly newcomer who didn't know anything, didn't have to know anything. And somebody had asked me a question, I'm like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just sitting here, you know, I don't know. Go talk to him. And really, the first year in SAS, that's the way I was. I just honestly knew... I was so full of it for so long, I didn't know anything, and it was such a relief. It was so beautiful, so freeing, and people would ask me to sponsor them, and I'm like, no, you know, because there's a lot, a lot of slippers, and I was maintaining sobriety, okay, and so I'm like, no. Then in about a year and a half, my sponsor had died, and still with the slippers, and the meetings were just, meetings are easy, by the way, I just... I don't know what you guys think, but I think meetings are just real easy. I can still go today and say my spill and leave, and there's no accountability and there's no depth. Okay, and I was falling back into that trap, you know, because I had maintained sobriety. People were starting to come to me again, so okay, well, I need to start sponsoring because Joe's died, and I need to step up to the plate. And I read the books, so I start singing stuff, and so I start sounding good again. And a fear struck me. Like, oh man, this is going to be the same thing. Next thing you know, I'll start gambling or something, you know. 
And what basically happened was we went to the International Convention in 2000, me and the three other guys, and they had us render a workshop, and none of us went to it. <laughs> it's kind of weird how that worked out. But we heard Roy speak on the Sunday morning, okay, and two of us just were, were blown away, like, this, this is it. We were just on fire at this. And the other two were like, well, you know, we'll see. So two of us go back and grab two more people. There had been a new gentleman that moved to Phoenix from Rochester who became my new sponsor. He had a little more sobriety, thank God. And um, another guy he sponsored that went with me, and then a guy that I sponsored. So four of us got together and decided we were going to try the surrender thing. And that's all we pretty much knew about it. <laughs> it's a surrender thing. Okay, and we got the copies of the essay issue one and two of December. You know, I read through those. We read Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. I had read that before, but it's good to go back and, oh, you know, that's what they did. We read that. And for the first month, we met every Friday and just kind of talked about what we were going to do. And then we found a place and a time, and for some reason, we just chose a Friday night. There's no, there's no meeting on Friday night, and nobody seemed to have a commitment. And we knew some basic ground rules, like it needed to be open-ended, and it wasn't an essay meeting, so we didn't have to tell everybody, and so they wouldn't you know, be coming and wanting to confess. And we took turns doing surrenders, okay, one person at a time. And all I know is my experience, what I've been through. You know, every time I have some fear, like when Roy invites me to do these workshops, like I don't, I still kind of, I don't know enough. I don't know enough to really get up and tell people how to do. But I remember Bill Wilson always says the language of the heart. You can't say anything wrong when you're talking about your experience, right? It's just what happened to me. I can't, there's no lies in that. You know, like Henrietta Sieberling always said, give, give news, not views, you know. <laughs> so I, 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 try to, I try to do that. So I'll give you an example of my first surrender in this group with my sponsor, another gentleman that I'm close to that he sponsors, and a gentleman that I'm close to that I sponsor. Three gentlemen that I'm very close to, and we've all, you know, heard each other's fifth steps and first steps and... I know that stuff. And we didn't know what to do. All we decided, the first person, I, mine wasn't the first, but the first person decided to do, well, I want to turn my will and my life over to care of God. That's my surrender. And we're like, I don't know. What does that mean? <laughs> it's so big. It's <laughs> so broad. You know, what, what, what is that? What about today? You know, what's going on in your life today? Just, oh, yeah, let's, let's talk about today. Let's talk about right now, this moment. What's your top plate thing that's getting in the way of you and God. What What is that? Something concrete. Let's just start with that, because the other one's so big, we don't know where, where to go with that. So mine was, I was having sexual dreams. So I wrote out, I want to surrender to God in this group my right to have sexual dreams. And this is kind of what we do back then. And then they just, we start off obviously with prayer, some quiet time. Silence is not a problem in the surrender. We can sit there and we can be silent and it's okay. We don't rush anything. We just take our time. Because it's open-ended. We don't have to be anywhere. It's not like people are looking at their watches. Well, you know, 
It's not a moment of silence. It's periods of silence. Because if you don't have anything to say, don't say anything. That's kind of what we come up with. Because I'm, I'm great at talking. I love to talk. And I can talk no matter if, if I have anything to say or not. I'll just talk. Ask my wife. She'll, she'll tell you. She says, shut up, Craig. Just, <laughs> she will. So my, my first surrender, I wrote it out. I want to surrender to God in this group my right to have sexual dreams. So then the questions started. Okay, one of the many questions, and this takes time. One of the, one of the questions was, well, have you had a problem with sexual dreams like in the past? I said, no, this, this is something that for me I just really hadn't, this wasn't even an issue. Even when I was acting out, it just, I've never had this. I was flipping out. This is new, right? I was like, well, what are you doing before bed? You must have changed your routine. Are you watching MTV, Howard Stern? Are you doing something like that? And I'm thinking, no, I haven't changed anything. Okay, well, about during the day? Are you doing this or that? No. And they're asking, they're just asking probing kind of questions, and they're sharing their experience. And so well, I know when, when I had a sexual dream, I was doing this that day. How about you? And during the surrender, there's always a couple of fundamental questions that come up and lead you right where you want to go. That's why it has to be specific. And one of the questions that really turned the light on my head was, who's in your dreams? Okay. Is there anybody specific in your dreams? I'm like, oh. I said, well, my boss. I had a new boss a few months ago, and I, frankly, I think she's coming on to me at work. You know, I, I, you know. Well, have you talked to anybody about this? Well, no. Obviously, it's in my head. I'm a sexaholic. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm a balding guy with a guy, and I'm married, and she's young and attractive. Why would she be coming on to me at work? You know, so obviously I was in my head trying to figure out why she's coming, and just you know, this was why you know, you know, all of us, you can all talk to us, you can talk to your sponsor, you know, just you know, the even if you think she's coming on to you, you should be you know talking to somebody. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know. And I kind of explained what was going on. They're like, well, Craig, I think she is. I think she's kind of... But then another fundamental question, I mean, the one that really cut to the chase came out. And he said, I think you don't tell anybody because you enjoy it. And my first thing I said was, no, that's not it. Let's go back to what I'm doing before I go to bed. <laughs> I must not be praying enough or meditating. I want to talk and focus on that. Okay, that's got to be the problem. And they're like, no, 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 no. I, I think you're really not telling anybody because you enjoy being lusted after. You're getting off on it. And in my head, I thought, who in the hell are you? Don't you know who I am? I found us this meeting place. Well, for me, we wouldn't be having this surrender. <laughs> you know, that, I was thinking all of this stuff, you know. I didn't say that. I just thought it. I was like, I was really pissed. And then I'm like, I think you're right. I think I'm enjoying it. I think I'm enjoying being lusted after. So that turned out to be my surrender. To God in this group, the right to be lusted after. And then at the end, which we always do, we reformulate the surrender, rewrite it down, the new one, and everybody is usually on the same page 
as far as what the surrender is. The whole group's usually, that's it. That's it. I mean, there's multiple surrenders out there, don't get me wrong. But we like the top plate today thing, because that, that builds so much faith in the group and trust in God. And then after that was written out, we all get on our knees, and I pray to God. I surrender to God in this group. The right to be lusted after. And then I keep on praying whatever I feel I need to, to pray. And each person prays for me and prays for the group. And we go around and we do that. And it's very solemn and it's very honest and it's very sincere and it's very open. And then we get up and, and hug and that, that's, then that's it. But something else we started doing. This is the accountability part, okay? Because I'm, I'm a bull of lightning person. I, I keep waiting for that Bill Wilson experience. You know, it's like, well, then I'll be fine. <laughs> you know? And I just want to be fixed. As soon as I'm fixed, then I'll be all right. So we didn't think that was enough just, you know. We needed some kind of accountability within the group. And so we always start the next, surrender with the person who surrendered last. We start, and we do talk to each other during the week, so it's not like we lose contact, so they know what's going on. But basically, if I would have shown up the following Friday, and he asked me how my week was, and if the thing with my boss was going on, and I hadn't called and talked to anybody about it, it wouldn't have been pretty. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's accountability there. But by the time I got to Friday, they knew because I had called them during the week and, you know, it's going to have a break. Okay, this happened. What do you think? What do you, know? Okay. you know, are you praying for her? Did you go into this room and you say a prayer for her? Prayer for her because obviously she's a sick person that's seeking something outside herself. You know, we need to pray for sick people. Have God grant her the peace. You know, let's, let's go out for coffee after, after work. You know, and I was doing that every day. And I was being accountable to the solutions that they prevented, presented me. Because they're presenting solutions to me. They're just not... The surrender is wonderful in itself, but if it's not followed up the next day, it can start to drift. If anything I learned from AA is that. I believe I had a profound spiritual experience in 1984 in AA. From where I came profound and, and I was right with God and I was doing the deal but somewhere along the line I wanted to lust more than I wanted God that's the difference today is the accountability and I need to have the group there for my accountability it's not me keeping myself accountable I'm just part of the group and the group knows me and I have everybody's number in my cell phone. And they have my number. And we call each other during the day. And we call each other and see each other at night. It's kind of like what the early Alkies were doing. Sure, they only had one meeting a week at the Williams' house. But if you pay attention, they, they were meeting nightly somewhere. And they were talking incessantly about this stuff. And they were on fire with the Spirit. So all four of us did the surrender, right? over like the next month. And mine was just no exception. They all turned out that way. Every one of them was just like, wow, this is, you know, we're cutting right to the chase. I mean, I could have went to SA meetings 
and talk about these sexual dreams for months and kind of self-analyze myself, or I could have bounced it off my sponsor. My sponsor wasn't the one, by the way, that asked me the fundamental questions. You know, my sponsor was, you know, what are you doing before, before bed? That was my sponsor. Very sincere, valid questions, but there's this other gentleman. You know, I think you're enjoying it. That's why I got so mad. He wasn't my sponsor, you know? But something about the contents of a group. One-on-one, I can kind of con you, right? I, I can, or not even if it's con, even if I'm sincere, you're just seeing one side of me. But you get two or three more perspectives of lestaholics like myself, who've been there, done that, then it's it's more apt that the truth and the light will be shown. That's just the odds are better, let's put it that way. So all of us did these surrenders and they all turned out really well. And we're getting closer and we're bonding, we're finding something deeper than just going to meetings or, or even a fifth step with your sponsor. I mean, deeper than that. I, I, I don't know how to describe the joy we were feeling in our hearts. Like, this this is it. I'd been looking for this for years. I mean, searching. I even went to Bible studies. <laughs> you know, I was not a churchgoer. I even went, like I said, to a counselor. I, I didn't really believe in counselors. Like, I got to do something. I got to do something. That's how just willing I was. So when I found this, I, I grabbed it with every breath in my body. In the meantime, I had been calling Roy and talking, asking me a few questions, and he was asking me a few questions. We're kind of trading information. Well, this is working here. What do you think? Well, we tried this. This didn't work. You know, one night we tried two surrenders in one night. Don't do that. <laughs> one person, one surrender at a time. But then we had to make a decision. After all four of us had done a surrender, what's going to happen? Are we going to turn this into some kind of pseudo-group therapy? We're all show up and talk about ourselves, our little problems, our little worries, you know. And I, I remember from from Doctor Bob. I mean, in the good old time, it's reading that. Doctor Bob had, had had been active in the Oxford group for two and a half years since '33, when they brought him all to town for Russell Firestone, and he was an intensely searching his spiritual answer and read every book he could get his hands on and going to, to pastors, psychologists, going to everybody, you know. But this was all about him, 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 his his spiritual solution he was trying and they were praying for him and, and, and all kinds of stuff. But when Bill hit town, not only did he have that, I'm relating to another alcoholic for the first time in my life, Bill had the idea of service and carrying a message. See, that's what Bill brought to town. Bill was out there working, 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 carrying the message, carrying the message. Nobody's sobering up, but he's out there, you know, listen to me, listen to me, you know. Bob wasn't doing any of that. That's all Bill was doing. But Bill didn't have, you know, other than the, the spiritual experience, he didn't have the depth, the spiritual knowledge and wealth to Dr. Bob. Not even close to it, Dr. Bob. And so he sit at the Ann's breakfast table every morning, Ann and Dr. Bob would fill Bill up with this spiritual essence, which is the message you carry. So I knew that story of, of how this fire struck. And so we decided, well, we can't just be us four. We grow or we die. So we started making lists of who's going to be next. <laughs> hey, you know, we don't know. Well, I like him out. I like him. He's right now. He's not ready. Uh, okay, he's, you know. And I remember I did call Roy 
and and on this particular things as well. We need to bring in another, but we don't know who to bring. And I was going to bounce the candidates off him. He says, well, did you pray to God to send you another? Oh, no, 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 no. Well, why don't you just pray, say a prayer, all four of you, and ask God to send you another. And another will appear. And I'm like, really? We <laughs> 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 were so clueless here. We think, you know. So we did that. The next time we got together, we just said a prayer. Please, God, send us another we can show your light to. And there's another who wants a deeper relationship with you through this truth and honesty that we have found. And God sent us another. And it's weird how it happens because we still go to the SA meetings, right? But we don't advertise this thing. We don't say, oh, we got this great thing on Friday night, come on over. We just really haven't announced it at all. But by the way we're talking... People are coming up to us after the meetings and saying, "You sound a little different. What's going on? You sound... I hear something. I don't know. It's just... And your sense of purpose is deeper. Your 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 closeness to God, and there's a little bit of a gleam in your eye. What? And we had the gentleman come up to one of us after the meeting. And says, "You know, what are you? What is going on? What are you doing?" So we told him. He said, "I want that." You know, when when is it? He says, "Well, well, it's Friday night. Can I come?" Well, we have to, you know, not stop through, but absolutely. And so we invited him in. And it's kind of a learn-as-you-go process, especially for us in, in Phoenix. But one thing we've decided was uh, a person needs to be at some kind of point of surrender for this thing to work. It's not for somebody who just wants to talk about their stuff. There's a big difference. And you can tell that when you bring somebody in and they just want to talk about their stuff. But they don't want a solution. See, there's a fundamental question in every surrender, like with mine. Remember the fundamental thing? I think you're not telling anybody because you enjoy it. At that point, I could have said, no, that's not it. I'm not going to go there. I want to talk about praying and meditation before I go to bed. And really not... We present the, the, the base of what we feel is the truth, and the group's usually all together on this, and they say, no, that's not it. I don't know. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to talk about that. I'm not open to that. I know what the problem is, and you're not letting me tell you what the problem is. <laughs> basically what they say. If you just listen, I'll tell you what the problem is. <laughs> and we're like, we've been here for three hours. We've heard We've heard your, what you think the problem is, and we're saying, we don't think that's it at all. We, we, we think this is it. Okay? So if a person's ready, they're ready. And you can't force them to be ready. It's always that one fundamental question. It's not, not complicated. Okay? So we started bringing in new people. Some of them surrendered. Some of them didn't. But it seems that most of the people that we have brought in have been willing and are looking for something deeper. And about a, a third of them that we have brought in, you know, I, I brought in one gentleman that, so I was getting really, really confident with this thing. And I was like, this is, this is the mother load. You know, this thing's come in. This will work for anybody. We just have to bring them here and talk to them long enough and they'll get it. 
You know, this is before our first, I don't like to say failure, but unsurrendered person. So I've been sponsoring this guy, right? And I'd ask him for months to get a big book, because, you know, I'm from AA, that's, that's what I know. So, you know, I'd get a big book, and he just hadn't got a big book. And I'd ask him to a few other things. I just, well, I suggest you do this, and he just wasn't doing it. And, and he wasn't staying sober, and he just, so I'm like, well, all we have to do is bring him in the Friday night. Right? And then when he hears that I'm not the only one saying this, he'll get it. You know, he'll understand. So we brought him in, and the group's kind of like me. It's like, oh, this this is it. This is going to work for everybody. We're really fired up. And we spent like three weeks on him. <laughs> you know, three hours each time, just talking and convincing and talking and convincing, you know. And and he had a little trouble with honesty. That's a little. And it's like the last night, we finally got him to admit he had a little trouble with honesty. And and is there anything else since you know that you you haven't told us in the last three weeks? You know? Well, I slept Wednesday. Does that does that matter? <laughs> and at that, I just threw up my hands and I was just like, I, I don't know what to say. And then we always have the questions, which are in here, the, the ending questions. When when you reformulate the surrender, we run through these ending questions. And I just kind of, I let go. I just gave up. I'm like, I, I don't And I said, group, you decide what's going on here. I'm just, so one gentleman started asking him the ending questions. Are you willing to go to any lanes for victory over less? Yep. And that's the way he was answering all of them. Do you want to stop? Yep. Why? Because I need to. No, but why do you want to stop? What's? Because I have to. Pat answers. You can't fool a group. I'm just not in this intimate setting. You just can't. I don't. I don't care. It's hard to describe. You just can't. And the group just kind of looked at each other and says, "You know, you're you're not ready. You're not willing to surrender. We, we think you're going to meetings to keep your wife happy." We think you have Craig as a sponsor, so you can tell your wife you have a sponsor. But we don't think you really want to quit lusting, because you have all of our phone numbers, and you do get up in the middle of the night, and, and you watch MTV, or Howard's Turn, or look at magazines, and you don't call anybody. And just We're just pointing out the actions. And now you're, you're, you're telling us that you will only go to any lengths, and this happened two days ago. It's really hard to believe. And I've been sponsoring for months and months. And that was our first, well, this is what we think the problem is. When you're ready, you have all of our numbers, and we'll, we'll invite you back. And he still goes to SA meetings. And he knows we're there. But we had to make a decision. Are we going to have him sit in our surrender accountability group week after week? Actively lusting and not wanting a solution? Or can we not? So we chose not to. And leaving the door wide open for him. And we're pretty pretty liberal when it comes to surrender too. I mean we're pretty we swing a wide loop, you know. We're we're pretty it doesn't take you know, if you have a sparkling of willingness. And and the two or three guys, the three guys that haven't surrendered, just just 
we just knew it. We just knew it. And we've had we've had other people that, you know, there's been some of us, well, I don't think he's ready. And then the other guy said, well, you know, he's willing to do this. That's more than that's more than something. And every person is unique, and every person is an individual, and you got to take them where they're at. That's the key. It's the ongoing process. And now we're getting big enough, we're going to split off into two different accountability surrender groups, or maybe find a place with two rooms so we can have two going on at the same time. And the meetings are still going on. We still go to the meetings. Meetings are great. That's where we go to find newcomers. You know, that's the wonderful thing about meetings. Like Roy says, they're kind of like the Akron City Hospital. That's, that's what kind of the, the way we are viewing meetings. The meetings are starting to change because more and more surrendered people who are serious are there, and and it's it's getting a little noticeable when you have people that are going willing to go to any lengths for victory over less and just fired up about it, sitting next to the person that just wants to be there to keep the wife happy. There's just you can tell us night and day. There's almost a line in the sand being drawn. But nobody tells them to quit going to meetings. I mean, when they're ready, they're ready. And maybe it takes going to meetings for a while to be ready. We don't know. But what we're doing is not a meeting. It's a close-knit, deep fellowship of surrendered people who want something more. We want to stop lusting. We don't want to lust a little to keep from lusting a lot. We want to stop lusting. That's the big thing. I'll add more later. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Craig. Uh, do you all have a 5 by 8 card? Okay, we're going to just take a brief exercise here. And um, the one requirement for our, for our morning workshop here is honesty. Um, one of the legacies that stuck when they broke from the Oxford group was the four absolutes, and the first was honesty, absolute honesty. And so our program is based on that. And so we're all going to write, just briefly, uh, one or two sentences on how is lust active in my life today? How about that? How is lust active in my life today? Anybody identify with the term lust in SA? Any? Okay. Um, what's the requirement for membership in SA? Just to stop acting out, right? No, okay, what is it? Desire to stop acting out? No, desire to stop what? Lusting. Oh, okay. You mean that's the priority? Oh, why didn't somebody tell me that when I came in? <laughs> okay, but it takes a while for us to do that. Okay, let's do that, and um, before we do that, let's pray for honesty. Let's stand, and uh, since the whole new thrust is collective, that uh, we cannot work this program in isolation, um, let's hold each other's hands and put the serenity prayer in the plural. And if we want, we can we can look. God grant us serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will and our hearts be done. Amen. Yeah, I'm in the right place. <laughs>
Okay, we don't want our life story, just one or two sentences, the top plate. This is not our bust inventory. By the way, we're going to have booklets. Uh, I, I printed about 20 booklets. Since we started doing this a couple of years ago, uh, we just keep notes on what we're doing. And uh, In Atlanta, we had another iteration of it, and now we have a little advice thing. I brought, I think, 22 or three copies with me. And um, uh, that has some of the questioners like, uh, we're starting a, a new 20 questions on lust. You, know, you recall, anybody remember reading the 20 questions in the text and in the brochure? You know, and what's that based on mainly from your recollection? What are those 20 questions mainly dealing with? The acting out. Okay. Now, 21 years later, what do we need? Acting in. Yeah, we need the questions. And maybe it's taken, taken us this long to see that the sexual sobriety is not enough. That underneath that are layers of our addiction which are taking us into a, uh, a deeper awareness, a deeper honesty, and a deeper walk with God and a deeper relation to others. We're very, very lucky. We're very, very lucky. And I'm glad the women are here today because underneath, once I discovered underneath the sex was the lust. And you know what's underneath the lust for me? Misconnection. Misconnection. And a lot of women who I've heard in the program don't relate with pornography or lust or even sex addiction, but do relate when I say, when I talk about my misconnection. That's the real illness. But underneath all of, all of that is my misconnection with another person, whether it's man or woman, as the source of my life. Okay, now, here's what we're going to do. For those who wish, don't write your name on these. This is confidential, but for those who wish to begin a journey of honesty. One of the, here's the deal. Uh, several years ago in the North Hollywood group, we tried an experiment. Stop the music. We got this format going, you know, people coming in, all this kind of stuff. Let's do something different. What happened was we sat around the circle. We chose not to give length to sobriety, not to say anything else, but the whole meeting was started by the leaders sharing where he was with lust today. And then we went around the circle. It was the most potent meeting we'd ever had because the, the leader shared in utter honesty where he was with lust today. Happened to be sober several years. But he was honest. He had the ability to be honest. And that was the expectation. And everyone around the meeting uh, did the same thing. And it was the most powerful meeting ever in that particular group. And so one of the best things you can do in your group recovery is to do that. Take an honest inventory. That's what we're doing here. Now, anyone who wants to share, let's have a limited number of people to come up to share what you've written. If you feel you can do it honestly, without ostentation, but in a sincere effort to reveal the thoughts and intents of your heart. And that's what this is all about today. Uh, we're so lucky to be in this fellowship. You know, we can't get by with sobriety, putting the plug in the jug. It's deeper than that. But the payoff of utter, utter, utter honesty is that when we can make that breakthrough, there's God waiting for us to give us something that we can't have otherwise. We can't have until we're willing to surrender the junk, that next top plate, that next surrender. I'm in that process, and I waited too long. That's why we're doing this, to hope people get into this process sooner. We can only do that together. So I think um, don't give your name. 
you know, don't, uh, I think they're recording this or something, so uh, don't give your name. It's optional. If anybody wants to come up, uh, we've got two mics here, and we'll see how it goes. I wrote, I'm powerless over obsessing about my looks. I obsessively look in the mirror to see what I look like about once an hour, sometimes more. It usually follows the thought that causes anxiety and bang, I'm, I'm in the mirror checking out my hair. I brush my hair constantly, especially while driving. I just grab the brush out of the glove compartment and I'm in the rearview mirror brushing, eyes off the road often weaving out of my lane or on the shoulder, and I've had a few close calls. It's a drug, and I can't do without it. I've carried a hairbrush in my pocket since high school, and I can't leave home without it. And I choose my clothes based on whether I feel, I feel attractive in them or not, and if I, if I feel like I won't turn heads that day, I'll die. Thanks. Um, I run. Uh, lust manifests itself in me, in my attraction to the superficial in others, in my attention, in, in my attraction superficially to the good in another person, on a daily basis, person by selected person. And conversely, lust manifests itself in me, in my rejection of others, superficially, or to the defects that I superficially perceive in another person, again on a daily basis, person by selected person. Lust has acted in my life two principal ways. One, through euphoric recall, enhanced by my imagining how it could have been better, and it even could be better if I ever tried that method of acting out again. And second, by looking at women occasionally, which means most of the time I can keep from looking, but every once in a while I have to, just to see how attractive they can be and to see if they still really interest me anymore. Uh, unfortunately, they usually do. Lust is active in my purposely finding channels on television that have nudity or partial nudity and justifying by telling myself that it's in the movie and it's okay to look because I was for that reason. I do it in secret when my wife is asleep or gone out. Lust is there in the turning of my head to see what's there, if anything's there for me. Um, there... And that just came up, my desire to still lust after teens. Um, something that came to my head this morning was perhaps even my desire to live my teen years totally over again. Um, and lust is really there uh, with my desire to just absolutely control everything, um, including my finances and my wife's spending. Lust comes in fear of facing that part of me which wants to drink, cross-dress, and act out. It comes through desire to be liked, lusted after, being in a demand to be validated. It doesn't want me to be seen as insecure, inferior, inadequate person in the eyes of others. How lust is active in my life today, number one, I think I secretly desire to be lusted over or four. Two, I get captivated by men and women who are openly gay. 
I think I want to be totally out. I get confusedly excited when someone reveals himself, herself, as being gay or homosexual. I also daydream about shocking others or another by revealing I am a homosexual. Um, I guess for me it is um, getting hits off of looking and also um, just indulging in fantasy to soothe myself, particularly at night. And then also using these and lust in general to avoid or medicate the discomfort that comes up for me when I'm not taking care of business in other areas. Uh, for me, uh, I lust for wanting to be liked. Um, although it's been a pattern throughout my whole life, recently I've been out of a job and got an opportunity and immediately changed my behavior to want the new boss and her staff to like me. For me, lust comes out in um, wanting a relationship with a certain kind of person, usually what I would consider exciting, they're usually dangerous and really unavailable for relationships. Good morning, group. I still must admit that I desire to be lusted after. I haven't surrendered that nearly as much as I've, through God's grace, cut way back on lusting after someone else. Yet lust must also be coming out in other ways by being resentful towards others fairly easily. Since I can't have this one woman in particular at work who I admit I'm lusting after, I resent her in no way though is she right for me to commit myself to except that she's a knockout physically. Uh, after those who are standing, uh, we'll stop the sharing. Lust is active in my life today. I still love to lust after men. I think all men like me. Therefore, um, I want men to lust after me. And reality is they don't like me and they don't call me even. Um, lust is in my head. I struggle with lust in the way I dress. I struggle not to wear tight-fitting clothes, not to dress inductively. I struggle with not fixing my hair sexy. I guess for uh, for me, as I have to admit a desire to be lusted after, um, also allowing myself to to drink in, uh, looking at people on the street, um, on public transportation. Uh, also at work, this is something lately, um, it's going to websites that aren't necessarily pornographic, but are toxic nonetheless. And a lot of websites have, you know, just general articles on sex and things like that, and, and just reading reading those kind of towing, towing the line a little bit. Um, and also going to, uh, to just normal bookstores, just glancing at magazines and things that are toxic, may not necessarily be pornographic, but just kind of borderline kinds of things. Lust is active in my life today uh, by not living in the moment, but looking ahead and not really being involved with those people who are around me, always thinking about the future. And by riding past a particular massage parlor where I might have acted out in the past. I want to be lusted after. I feel that my new stage of serenity through surrender, diet, and attitude has made me attractive, which is something I seldom have felt. I am having a problem accepting and dealing with this and feel that it's the way my addict plans to trip me up today, and that's why I'm concerned about it. 
Less is active in my life today at work. As a teacher, I desire that my students less for me sexually, emotionally, that they see me as a as their best friend, as a father figure, and ultimately as what I am not and not meant to be. Uh, Lust is active in my life today uh, in dreams, nighttime dreams, daytime dreams, uh, fantasizing, uh, looking at strangers, single people, especially seeing other couples, especially interracial couples. Uh, I, uh, it's active toward my wife, um, trying to figure out lust versus love. Um, at work, I have a coworker that I steal drink lust hits off, um, drinks off of all the time. Um, I'm not skipping over this. I wrote down towards my daughter, and uh, I don't know if that's true, but I, I want to say it rather than not say it. And uh, also, especially with other types of fantasies like resentment fantasies, hero fantasies, wanting to be a hero. Lust is active in my life today by uh, my failure to stop giving in, uh, staring at women, losing my own respect, and uh, taking the respect away from that woman. And I believe that lust is my number one distraction with my misconnection with myself and my family. Lust is active in my life today through uh, sexual dreams and other dreams involving lust at night. Um, Lust is active in an obsessive need to uh, see if my neighbor is home and to drink her in when I see her outside in front of her house. Lust is also active in uh, being tempted and wanting to and taking drinks in of uh, particular women at work. Uh, lust is active in my life today through um, the people I associate myself with who are not of a program and consistently talk. Uh, about sex and other derogatory things, and um, I'm obsessive with uh, TV and, and not just with pornography on TV, but with drama and with uh, self-involvement with uh, characters I see in movies. Okay, what is you know, what have we just heard? I mean, let's look at us, you know, some alien from out of space was here <laughs> listening to all of this. What's going on? Pain, brokenness. Pain, brokenness. What? Lust is controlling our lives. Misconnecting. Shame. Assaults from lust continue. They don't disappear. So what is... Lack of serenity. Not wanting to give it up. You hear a lot of people wanting to give something up. Is that something like surrender? 
that, that's, that's a very good point before I take any more questions. Uh, possibly, never thought of it this way, the people who shared, why did they share? Why did they want to get it out in the open? Want to be free of it? Want to be free of it? Want to be free? Really? Really? You know, after after a few years, I don't know how many, five or six, seven, after my post office experience, I had nothing. I was sober several years. And after that experience, how many have read my post office experience? To me. I forget where it is, but it's in print somewhere. Um, I had nothing, and I, had, I, I knew that I couldn't exist in a vacuum. I had to know who he was for me. I had to find what my lust was really looking for, and I didn't know what it was. I had never been there. So why are we here? Why are you guys here? Okay, so we... we how many of us, honestly, now here again, the only requirement is utter honesty. And just, how, how many feel the force of what's been shared here in some way? How many feel the power of this force, whatever it is? Most everybody here. Why are we having such a hard time with it? Too ingrained in the human animal? Too much ingrained? I'd like to comment on that before I take this next question. I discovered, I came to the conclusion that lust, you know, the sexual addiction, the addiction was probably neurological with, uh, you know, genetic overtones or environmental overtones and whatnot, and that I could kind of, kind of, kind of, terms with, and then in the sexual sobriety, and then getting victory over lust, but why am I still tempted? Why is it still a power out there? Why is it still a power in here? And um, I came to the conclusion, for me, that I had not only programmed my brain and my nervous system and my body for lust, but my soul has been permanently altered and programmed and changed. And that means my identity as a human being. Now, it's at this level where homosexuality, heterosexuality, bisexuality, and all of this disappears. And underneath, if we identify with this force we're talking about, we find that, there, that whatever it is, is pseudo-sexual has really nothing to do with sex. But it happens to use one expression of sex or another. It doesn't matter. But So uh, people ask me sometimes, what are you, Roy? Uh, and I say, well, ask me. And they'll ask me, are you gay? And I say, no. They say, are you straight? I say, no. Are you bi? I say, no. Are you asexual? I say, no. Then what the hell are you? And I say, I'm a recovering pseudo-sexual because all of my thinking and behavior before recovery, was working against my normal sexuality. So I'm a pseudosexual. We live in the midst of a pseudosexual revolution. We've got an intelligent offer, uh, audience here, D.C. I, I can use for terms like that. 
and as some of you know, I, I've, I've written about this in, a cult, in an examination of a book called Lust Virus. It isn't published yet. Pray that, uh, God willing, I'll, I'll do something with it because we need to see some, some of the elements here. We need to understand why this is so impossible. Now, I use the word impossible. I came to the conclusion, you know, stopping sex kind of just happened. After a month, I woke up, good night, for the first time in my life, I haven't had sex. You know, I haven't, you know, I, I was kicked out, but, you know, no masturbation, no sex or anything else. And, and that continued until I slipped after a year and a half. But that, that was no problem, really. Uh, I went through some withdrawal, you know, but uh, no big deal. But the lust. So I came, uh, I feel I'm one of the luckiest people in the universe. Because I can qualify as a hopeless, helpless, in the Akron City Hospital where I've been, it's my probably my last stay, you know, like Bill W. And there's medicine, can, there's nothing medicine, science, or religion can do. There I am, and I'm going to die. That's where I am with lust, exactly. So I need the kind of miracle that's there. I don't need a 12-step program. I don't need another self-help program. I don't need SA. I need a miracle. And I can't do it alone. So... What we're doing today is rediscovering the very simple origins of our program. Before there was any book written, before there were any 12 steps or anything else, before any kind of program was written, this is what they were doing. One drunk talking to another. You're in the hospital. Dr. Bob is there. He puts you in the detox. You're there for only five or six days. That's all he can do. During that five or six days, he's talking to you first, and then the new sober Drunks are talking to you, and every day two or more sex, uh, alcoholics talk to you. Tell you what they had to do, that they had to give up their right to drink absolutely to God. And, 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 turn, and, and we're going uh, to talk about this uh, in the Frank Amos report. And uh, so that, we're very, very lucky. Now, this is not for everybody, is it? Because less than 50% of the people that were in that hospital wound up on their knees and wound up sober, and some of them slipped. So we can't expect a perfect program, but there's something wrong in our program when a very infinitesimal percentage maintain physical sobriety and then get the miracle of having the obsession lifted. Here's what I wrote. And all this is is the truth of my experience today. I've got to be honest with you guys. Where is lust active in my life today? My attention is still drawn to what appears to be a lust-worthy image. But I'm okay with it. Whether it happens to be in person or a picture. I don't have to or want to take a drink or open up to lust. Now that to me is just an incredible miracle. And I'm a lustaholic. I'm in the airport the other day. And waiting in for the for the baggage, and there she is, obviously a prostitute, and she's talking to me. And an attractive woman, the kind you know, that I used to be out with in in L.A. And so there she is, and it, it resonates immediately. That's my last lustworthy event. And I was able to say hi, and look her in the eyes, and see who she was. And the recognition was immediate. And the feeling I had 
was, please help this woman. And I knew I couldn't help her. So I couldn't engage. I had to disengage the conversation. But for a long time, hours, she kept coming into my mind and I brought her up to God and said, please help this dear woman. And uh, and for the sisters out there on the street, you know, my heart's cry is for their redemption. But you know what? You know what has to happen first before they can be saved, before they can get into recovery? You and I have to stop lusting after them. You and I can't do that if you're like me. So we need a miracle. And the miracle, and we've got to test God. What you're going to hear today, and, and it's going to be very simple, we'll be through by noon, hopefully. Um, what you're going to hear today is uh, our best attempt, our very imperfect attempt, to recapitulate what they were doing in Akron. Not in New York City. In Akron, Ohio. Okay, um, let's uh, take a five-minute break, and we'll come right back in five minutes. Okay, what we're going to do is make available the booklet. There are about 23 copies of the booklet that are going to be for sale at the cost. They cost me, what, $2.66 each from uh, Staples. And um, I, I think uh, Dave or somebody will be selling them uh, to defray that expense. I'd just like to go through it. There are three copies that have the pink cover that are that include several appendices. The other books that aren't pink have everything identical but without the appendices. Uh, don't ask me how that happened, but it's okay. That's why I think the leaders should have, those who want to duplicate it should probably have the pink book if you want the appendices. Uh, I'll just read what the appendices are. John's story, the appendices have two of the stories, John's and also uh, Ned's. Uh, appendices one and six are two stories of people who have uh, they're telling their story, what happened in their surrender, and they're kind of illuminating. These were, uh, in one case, in Ned's a surrender experience, it was uh, uh, his first surrender in the circle. In the case of John, it was it must have been four or five, surrender four or five in his continuing circle. Um, I'll just briefly go through the book. The first uh, first chapter is, What is Lost Recovery?, and I'm just going to hit that briefly. False recovery techniques. This is kind of a workbook, group exercises. There are four or five or six things you can do, just like we did this morning. Uh, calendar sobriety syndrome. Um, what is victory over lust? That's one of the most uh, untalked about things in SA that we can really start talking about honestly. If we want lust recovery, we've got to start talking honestly about what is lust recovery. It's not easy. Not easy topic. It has a beginning, but apparently no end. Um, and then uh, chapter two is the fire strikes, Akron, Ohio, just a brief summary. Uh, and then the Frank Amos report, very brief. Um, chapter three is how it's working. And in chapter three, how it's working is one extended surrender session 
described in detail of what was going on with this one guy, Michael. The, name, the names have been changed to protect the uh, innocent here, to protect the guilty. And um, it's a very interesting session because it wound up kind of inconclusive, but it wound up giving direction to this character that uh, he could have never gotten otherwise. Very, very powerful session that I happen to be in. And uh, and so it, it, it shows you how the process at work. As Craig said so well, this is no fix-all, no new technique or anything. This is a focused third-step surrender. It's all it is. Only it's bringing it, trying to discover what the third step is, not for alcoholics, but for me, for you, for the people we shared today on lust, the impossible addiction. Um, and then chapter four is kind of the nuts and bolts. You throw everything else away and you got these questions in chapter four on the suggested questions that we ask before a surrender, like Craig has mentioned, he's going to go through those, and then during the surrender. So it's very simple. And then the other appendices, you can get those. But um, I'd like to go now to uh, the Frank Amos report. And uh, as you know, uh, after a couple years of success in Akron, they had quite a fellowship. And Bill was so excited, he went back to New York. He'd come out whenever he could to see what's going on in Akron. And, of course, his group finally got started in New York City. The fire struck, though, in Akron. And uh, so Bill is uh, really fired up, and he's an entrepreneur. Bill was... Can I hand these out now? No. Wait till you're done? Yeah. Uh, so Bill uh, sees that he intuitively senses there's something here that's going to change the world. And so he wants money. He asks Rockefeller for money, and you know Rockefeller turned him down. But what happened was Rockefeller... Uh, believed something was going on here. So he sends out Frank Amos to Akron, Ohio after a couple of years. And Amos is a non-alcoholic. He's an executive. And he interviews the staff of Akron City Hospital where Dr. Bob is practicing, the other surgeons, the staff, the nurses, the administrative staff. Then he goes to meetings. He's invited to meetings. He talks to alcoholics, recovering. He stays there for an extended period of time. Then he writes a report to Rockefeller. On page 131 of Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, there are, the first, there are seven points that are in the report, and I'm going to just read to you the first three. That's the first time anybody described what they were doing to stop drinking. Point one. An alcoholic, this is uh, Frank Ames, an alcoholic must realize that he is an alcoholic, incurable from a medical viewpoint, and that he must never again drink anything with alcohol in it. Our purpose in going back to origin is to see how does this apply to us. So what I challenge you to do is read that in your Dr. Bob book if you want if you need and want a deeper recovery and release from an impossible addiction and want to test God to see if he's going to do for you what he did back there and is doing for some of us today, translate that for you. What does that mean? A lustaholic must realize he is a lustaholic incurable from a medical viewpoint. 
How many of our people come in today are already on meds and counseling? Okay, uh, you know, a, a lot of people. And uh, you mean to say that, uh, well, how does this apply to me? I've got to ask that question. I can't answer it for you. I've got to only answer it for me. We could go into detail on that, but I'm not going to. And that he must never again drink. Who? Oh. You mean for me to recover from lust? I've got to realize that I can't lust anymore? Do you mean that for me to recover from my lust, that I can't continue lusting? Um, that's the kind of question that I had to face. I finally came to the place, after too many years, that's why I'm here. You shouldn't have to take as many years as I did to come to the decision that I could not lust and recover. After my post office temptation, I knew I had nothing. I'd worked the steps, I had sponsors, I was active in the program, and it was distracting the real problem. It was distracting the fact that inside, I still have an impossible obsession. So I had to start crying out to the same God they did in Akron City Hospital. And it wasn't humiliating. It was freeing for me to say, I am nothing. I have nothing in me. And so I could, that first point, I finally realized, man, what a new beginning. What a new beginning. <coughs> Number two, he must surrender himself absolutely to God, realizing that in himself there is no hope. That's where Craig and I, and some of the others, Dayton, Rochester, Erie, Glendora, we're hoping now Cork, Ireland, uh, whatever, the group's getting started, uh, getting the word absolute. We're taught in the AA program, there are no absolutes, there are, mu there are no musts. There are plenty of absolutes and plenty of musts. I think there are seven musts in this Frank Amos report that he was saying, these guys have to do that or they can't recover. Um, kind of puts our program to the test, test doesn't it? That's what we need. And that's why this can't be for everybody. And it's okay. It's okay. I believe it is a remedy for those who are willing to surrender absolutely. Not giving something up. We all gave it up thousands of times. No, that's not absolute surrender. It's absolutely to God. And I can't do that by myself. In himself, there is no hope. You know, that's our first step. 21 years and we're beginning to see what the first step really means. It has very little to do, if anything, to do with sex addiction. It has everything to do with the real powerlessness. I thank God today I'm powerless. Man, I don't have to do it. I don't have to do it. Okay, only, and that, we're going to close, just, just number three, item three in his report. Not only must he want to stop drinking permanently. Do you want to stop lusting permanently? You know, that's where the rubber hits the road for me. I finally had to say, I don't want any of any of this anymore. I had to come to that willingness. Whether or not it would happen, whether or not it was possible or not, it didn't matter. I just had to come to the end. I don't want it anymore. Not only must he want to stop drinking permanently, he must remove from his life other sins, such as hatred, 
adultery, and others which frequently accompany alcoholism, unless he will do this absolutely, Smith, Dr. Smith and his associates, refuse to work with him. This works for me. This works for me, but it doesn't work alone. My last surrender in the group, and then I'm going to have Craig uh, talk about these questions. I'm going to get into the nitty-gritty of what happens. Uh, <clears throat> well, one of the first surrenders in my circle, I called two of the guys in my circle to the hospital. I had pneumonia, and they were going to do a biopsy on my lung, and I was scared because I made the mistake of asking the surgeon, what are some of the side effects? You know, you want, you, you need my permission to do a biopsy. Just tell me what, you know, what can go wrong. And he, he told me. <laughs> you know, we can puncture your lung, your lung will collapse, you can get an infection. You know, he went through the thing. And that night, it just started dawning on me. And so, I got drunk on fear. I got drunk on fear. I opened the window of my soul, just like I used to to lust, and I got drunk. I was powerless in help. I called the two guys. We went to the little chapel in my little bathrobe, and um, and I had my surrender meeting. I had a check meeting, and I thought, well, I want to surrender my unbelief, you know, man. So I came out with my, <laughs> my statement, and they sat there, and they started, they know me, thank God, and they started asking questions. The dummies, why couldn't they just take my problem? <laughs> And say, okay, boy, let's surrender, you know? No, they, they, they weren't satisfied with that. They're savvy to the lustaholic mentality, the deceptive, self-deception. Anyhow, winds up, the bottom line is, I discover I'm living in unbelief. And that unbelief is based on my unbelief that God is going to save S.A. has nothing to do with pneumonia. Because S.A. is going through this humongous crisis. And so I, I wound up forgetting fear, surrendering my unbelief. The next day when they did the biopsy, the surgeon said it was the best bronchoscopy he had ever done. The easiest, the one that just boom, boomed out. You know, he said, what? You know, and so my attitude was right. Anyhow, this, this works, guys. Okay, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about part of the process we've kind of come up with. And it's important when and if you start your own accountability group to try to keep in contact with me because I'm going to try to keep in contact with all the other groups around the nation and internationally. And we're going to bounce each other's ideas off of each other. You're going to try something and it's not going to work and you can let me know that. And I'm like, well, this is not a good idea. And... uh I want to thank, i just interrupt here before he goes on, I want to thank Craig and the Phoenix Group for taking this. Uh, it's frankly, I'm way over my head in work, in projects. I can't do it. And uh, it's better It's better to do it this way if they can. And he's going to need all the help he can get. Phoenix is going to need all the help he can get. And you know, if it's of God, it's going to work. And if not, who cares? I think it's working. Okay, take it over. So that's how we learn. We've done some things like, you know, doing two surrenders in one night that you just, I would never do again. And I can give you that, you know, advice. And we tried that. It didn't work. And you're going to have something that, that you tried that's going to work very well. And we would like to know that. 
So after we're done, I can certainly give you my email address and phone number so we can keep in touch with each other in the progress. Um, there's no right or wrong way to do this, obviously. Every group is unique. They need to come up with their own system that they're comfortable with, and ours changes a little bit every Friday night. <laughs> That's one way we're kind of unique. We meet every Friday night, although we also have spontaneous check meetings. Friday night is basically the priority is for the new person coming in. That's the priority of Friday night. When we see a new person or somebody that's been around a while at an existing meeting and they approach us afterwards and they have this desire for something more, that's what Friday night's for. And we often spend two Friday nights on one person. It's no big thing. Okay. Well, what happens if uh, we have a new person coming in Friday night and one of our current fellowship members is having a little crisis? What are we going to do? Well, we have a spontaneous check meeting. Like I said, we talk to each other all the time, so it's no big thing. I had uh, a guy I sponsored call me a couple weeks ago and some stuff was going on. I called four, five, six of our group. Okay, four of them could make it. We met at a, a, a church on a Sunday afternoon and it turned into a surrender. Started off as a check meeting. A check meeting is where you go in with no... It's not a new person. Okay. It's kind of a top plate thing today. And it can turn into a surrender, which is full-blown. We go through the questions on our knees and everything. A surrender, if you go into it with an existing member, can also turn into a check meeting because <laughs> you've reached that point and they're not ready. Well, what do you do? Okay. Uh, so that can also turn into a check meeting. What we kind of do now is for the new person that's going to come in, they're usually invited in, obviously, by one of us, and we're usually sponsoring them because we seem to sponsor most of the people in Phoenix because we're not that big. And we always try, if, if we're trying to get the people who sponsor other people in first. You see what I mean? If we have somebody that's not in our group and he's out there and, and, and they're sponsoring people and they're active, we would, you know, hopefully try to get that person in first. And Phoenix is unique because we're not that big. We haven't had to worry about it. I, I don't like to undercut sponsorship if you're sponsoring a person and, you know, the new person comes to us and we would say, well, what about your sponsor? What's going on? Let's talk to him first. You know, I don't want to get in the way of that. So we've come up with basically this. Um, whether the person's been around a while or not, they need to basically be at a step two when they hit the Friday night surrender group. That's where they're at, step two. Okay? And what we would like them to do is do step one with their sponsor, who's usually already a member of our group. And then they do step one before the group that some of us can attend. And then for those of us who are unable to attend that particular meeting where they did their first step, we also give them a little questionnaire with some basic information. The reason is twofold. We want them at a point of, of surrender. Okay? Knowledge of their powerlessness and unmanageability is, is vital. And also, we want to know who they are. Okay? In the hospital, 
those guys were visiting the new person every single day, getting to know the person, where they married, you know, and sharing themselves and their stories to that person as well. So in this book, I always made out, he just put real fast some of the questions that we ask. Are you married, divorced, living with someone? Do you have any children? Have you disclosed to your spouse how much? Describe your relationship. Currently seeing a mental health worker. How long? Currently taking any medications? Have you gone to or participated in other 12-step programs, self-help groups? Which ones? Do you have an essay sponsor? Do you sponsor others? What's your occupation? Describe your childhood. What are your personal hobbies? Do you participate? Were you raised with a religion? Which one? Do you participate in any type of religious or spiritual practice besides a SA? And it doesn't matter which one it is. It's just for information. What brought you to SA? So you have some open-ended questions, too, so we can kind of find out what's behind there. Describe your physical and mental health. Describe your spiritual health. What do you want out of SA? Anything else you feel is relevant? That's basically... Then we all get a copy of that, the people that are going to be at the surrender. Now, not everybody... Oh, it shows up every Friday night. It's no big thing. We know ahead of time who's going to be there. See, right now we have like, you know, 12 people. And we don't like to have 12 people all show up with a new person and <laughs> asking them questions. It's just it's too crowded, too many questions. Okay. So we know ahead of time who's going to be there. The priority for the people that are there are the, obviously the, the, the sponsor and the people that have heard the person's first step. That's the priority. Okay. And if a couple others are going to be there and they really don't know the person, like the last surrender I was at, I, I didn't hear his first step. I didn't know him very well, but he filled this out and I read through it. And I kind of took a back seat and let the people who knew him ask most of the questions, you know. So that's what we start off with so we get to know him. And then we kind of explain what the surrender is ahead of time. We're talking to them a week before. They kind of know what to expect. They're not in the dark. So when they come on Friday night, they at least have talked to us. At least we know who they are. We know who they are. It's not blind. And then we explain the most important thing of the night, which is absolute honesty. That's number one, really the only requirement, is absolute honesty. Don't, don't lie. Don't, don't tell us something we, you think we want to hear. Okay, and we need to be absolutely honest as well. Sometimes we have somebody come in that's been around a while, and everybody kind of likes the person. He's a good guy. He's kind of his friends. You hang out with him. That can get away in a way of a surrender. What's more important, the truth or friendship? At during the surrender, the friendship almost goes out the door. Because it's more important to be honest and tell somebody what the Spirit is leading you to tell than it is for you to make them happy. It's like during my initial surrender, my friend could have just said, oh yeah, you need to concentrate on your, your prayer and meditation. But he took the risk, and he knew I'd you know, get upset. But he felt it was more important for him to say what he honestly felt, that I was enjoying this, than to be my friend at that particular moment and tell me something I wanted to hear. So friendships are irrelevant. Length of sobriety is irrelevant. Who's sponsoring who is irrelevant on Friday night. 
It doesn't come up. It's not an issue. We don't talk about it. It's just, it just kind of happened that way. We didn't set this up to be that way. I'm just seeing the results of what we've been doing. It never comes up. Okay. Now, when it does, you know, my, my temptation to say, well, I'm sponsoring and I'm doing, that seemed that my ego was getting in there. So that was getting in the way of the truth and what we were trying to get at. So that's why it just never comes up about how long you've been sober and if you're sponsoring or if you're more active. It's just not an issue. We're staying in today, your top plate thing, right now, right this moment. Period. And I'm no different than you. I got to be honest. I got to be willing. I got to be open-minded. I got to be vulnerable. Okay? I can't sit there and say, well, I'm so-and-so, and look at, you know, and start preaching. And during the surrender process, and they come and they write out their surrender, we always have them write three surrenders. This is just us. You guys figure out your own way. Three different things that their top plate surrenders are today. We have found that is good because I, like everybody else here, I really don't know what's wrong with me. Okay? I have a clue what I think my problem is, but after my experience in the surrender group, it usually is not what I think it is. It's something else. So my me coming and writing three what I think are the top plate things in my life today, and then the group basically asks questions on each one and chooses which one they think is the top plate thing today. So he takes the person out of it. The group chooses. And then through the questioning, that's always reformulated usually into something else anyway. And this keeps getting deeper and deeper. Now, I told you my first surrender, right? The, the sexual dreams. My last surrender was Very deep. Sorry. I wanted to surrender. Uh, I, I have a son and a daughter from a previous marriage. And I wasn't at my events. And my son was uh, killed in a car wreck. So my surrender was... Uh, I, I, I basically, this amends was hanging out there. How do I make amends? What do I do? So my surrender initially was, I'd quit talking about my son. I'd quit being open about my son. I'd just put it on the shelf. Now, after the divorce, I had failed to pay some child support. And I owed amends. And my daughter, she's in college. I'm, I'm sending her every month. Money every month to help us through college. That's what I do. I'm, I'm, that's part of my family. And then we have this dialogue going, and it's great. We're emailing each other, and we're talking to each other, and I help her out. And I'm sitting there, what about my son? You know, this is like... So the first thing I had to do was start talking about it. Okay? So bring it for the group. Honor, surrender, the right to not talk about my son. Okay, so... And I had three things. All dealing with the sun, everything, and so they started asking me questions and found out that I had a lot of guilt, a lot of guilt. Why are you feeling guilty? Well, 
because of this I did, and you know I wasn't there, and you know I should have been closer to him, and I should have all this whatever. Okay, and then it 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 turned. It wasn't about my son at all. It was about my resentment towards my father. I felt guilty because of some stuff that happened because he felt I had abandoned my son. Okay. And when we got down to the truth of it, I had never really abandoned my son. We just got divorced. So then I had this thing with my dad. And so that was my surrender, my resentment towards my dad. But I'm wandering around for months thinking, how am I going to make amends? How am I going to make amends? And in the meantime, seven months ago, today my wife and I had a baby. And a boy. And they're saying... There's your men's. It's your son. I mean, you're helping your daughter out, you know, financially, and you're making. But your men's is to your current living son by being the dad you never could be. And uh, that just freed me. The week following that surrender, I just walked around and just joy and freedom in my heart and closeness with God that I never knew. This is what I'm talking about as far as surrender. The depth that we go to. This is deep, deep stuff. I would lust over this stuff, act out over this stuff, be fearful over this stuff, present over this stuff. And of myself, I'm clueless as to what it is. I think I know what it is, but I don't. You see, I'm so convinced if I go to meetings and talk about it long enough, it'll go away. Or I bounce it off my sponsor in a fifth step or a tenth step, it's just going to, okay, if I talk about it enough, it'll go away. That never worked because I was never patient enough to let the real truth be shown like these surrenders can do. This takes time. It takes closeness. It takes as setting a prayer and meditation and silence. It takes a willingness to hear the truth even if you don't want to hear the truth. So after a surrender is reformulated, and like in my case, i got to make amends to my dad too, by the way. <laughs> I've already made one, but I'll make another. Uh, the right to... Uh, so we reformulate the surrender, right? And then we ask them follow-up questions at the very end. So when we reformulate the surrender, the group is all again on the same page. Yeah, this is a valid, sincere surrender. This is definitely something. And the person doing the surrender sees it too, like me. I'm like, yep, okay, I see this. Then it says, what are your surrendering status specifically? And you write it out. Surrender to God in this group, my right to resent my dad. Are you powerless over this? 
answer that. Is there any chance you can control or limit this yourself? Why not? Are you, uh, what has this defect cost you? And when we ask these, we always wait while the person is answering. At first, I was like jumping right in. What does this defect cost you? A lot. Okay. Now, how can you live without it? I don't know. Okay. Well, that isn't the way we do that. What does this defect cost you? And then we pause and just wait. And the person may say something right away, and we still wait. And we let that sink in. We let that, okay, it cost me a deeper relationship with my father. It's cost me a deeper relationship with my son, whose spirit is still living. It's cost me uh, maybe a deeper relationship with my new boy. You know, I, I'm, I'm sitting there going through this very patiently coming up with this stuff. So we do not hurry this process. This is very, very slow. And after all the questioning, then the person is ready to do the surrender and we get on our knees and we say it out loud before the group as I already described. And then there are also follow-up questions and a time for the person to come down. I just wanted to comment on add on that surrender. <clears throat> just uh, it seems like uh, most of us are so willing to surrender. The slowdown that Craig is talking about is so very very important because one of the uh, <laughs> seems like in our experience we got to say, "Oh, stop the music! Don't surrender!" You know, wait until you un until you really understand what you're doing here, what the price is, what it's going to cost you. Do you really understand what this surrender means? The impossible. You know, we 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 we're, we're almost too willing. Yes, I surrender my will in my life. Wasn't that easy on the third step? So we 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 we're very cautious. We're very slow. We don't hurry anybody. And in, and then uh, I think we you know <laughs> make sure that uh, it, it's not so easy. But it's a marvelous process. Go ahead. Yeah, something about these following questions. This is the same, same way with the questions during the surrender. They're very patiently asked. And remember the silence I talked about? It's usually the silence when the person is responding. And sometimes they don't have a response. And I, I don't know about anybody else, I want to jump right in there and say, well, this is, you know, problem. Can't you see it? I, boy, it's tough for me. I really want to do that. And, and I just bite my tongue and I wait for the answer. Uh, I'll never forget, we were doing a surrender with someone in a, in a foreign country, which is definitely not ideal, but uh, there was nobody there that could do, do it. It wasn't established yet. And so we had, in the study, we had about three or four people and a speakerphone and the guy in Germany was uh, was there, and we knew him because before he'd gone to Germany, uh, he, he was in the circle. And uh, so he was up for another, he was going wild out there, and uh, so he, he needed a surrender circle. Anyhow, so we've got a uh, few people in the study, and here's the speakerphone, and the concentration is on the guy in Germany, and it's going very well. I mean, he's really... We're, it's very sincere. It's been open in prayer. It's in the right spirit. And suddenly, one of the people in my study 
who's totally, you know, well, anyhow, one of the people in my study dropped to his knees before the speakerphone and cried out into the phone, you mean I have to give up my right to sex for the rest of my life? And this is a single parent, been divorced, who had, had been sober a few years and then slipped in a relationship and then was, had just come back and was, re, you know, was in the process of seeing what was wrong. Anyhow, so here's a man, so often we find I've done the same thing. Uh, so this man that did that, however, the man in Germany made a surrender. This guy never made the surrender. He's back out there today, a dear friend, and we don't know what's going to happen. But he saw the honesty that was there. When God is present, you know, this thing is a God thing. If, if God isn't there, forget it. Don't even try it. If you can't bring God into this circle, forget it. It's going to be something, you know, something else. That's why we discuss in this book, this is a second tradition, third step. Second tradition is the loving God has to be active in this circle or else it's not going to work. So we're discovering uh, the basic things here very well. Another, another circle we had, uh, we're in this guy's apartment and uh, turns out, well, it's in the book actually, the story that's in the book. Uh, I had a resentment of, of one of the people coming in and uh, we sat down in the circle and you could feel the tension. I knew what I had to do right there. I had to bring it out and I made amends and, and discussed my resentment and we had it out and then we could begin. Okay. Uh, not a lot more. One thing, Roy, right up that came, comes to mind when when you ask a question, at least this is what we bring up, you always ask yourself, like with my... You know, I came out, I, I have resentment towards my father. When the people ask me the question, they need to be asking themselves, where am I with my father? Am I okay with my father? What's going on? And and usually, if there's a problem, they will bring it up right then. It doesn't turn or divert to surrender, but it seems to make the atmosphere stronger and more truthful. Okay. Well, I know I have a problem with my father and I really resent him and this is where I'm at with that with the, today and, and this is kind of what I see you in you today, Craig. But they're talking about their weakness too. That's the key. It's, it's not pointing and judging. You know, what the hell do you do that for, Craig? You know, you don't... <laughs> you don't, don't... Don't approach it that way. You approach this from your weakness, from from the willingness to let the Spirit lead you and ask the questions. And in that atmosphere, the person doing the surrender feels comfortable and non-threatened because this could be threatening and intimidating if, if used the wrong way, if used with ego and, and forces other than of God. This could be very, very dangerous. So we need to enter it with prayer. We need to enter it with honesty. We need to ask ourselves, where am I with that today? Am I having sexual dreams? You know, And if I am, I need to bring that right then, right, right there, and be open with it. And a lot of times, what will come out is the next surrender. <laughs> we say, oh, okay, well, you're next week. Okay. But that's great, though. I mean, that's, that's how all this stuff comes out. Through one 
leading through their weakness and exposing themselves, it frees everybody else up to do the same thing on that deep, intimate level. And they usually say, gee, I, I want to talk about this too. I, I really want to talk. I'm having problems with this. I really want to get this off my chest. And you don't have to wait till next Friday and have a spontaneous check meeting. But it's an atmosphere of openness and honesty that is created. And through this openness and honesty, we find the true sunlight of the Spirit. I'm convinced of that. Today, I can honestly say I'm, I'm not lusting. I'm tempted, like Roy had said, but I'm not lusting. I mean, I can go on the Internet and not lust. If an image comes up, there's this, it's hard to describe, but there's this kind of just shield that comes down. And I just kind of go inward and thank God and I just continue on my way. But there's no fear. There's no hit. I know the difference. And today, I, I'm not lusting. And that's the miracle of this thing. There's no way Craig can go on the Internet and not lust. That's absolutely impossible. Trust me. I'll tell you my story, but I don't want to get it done. <laughs> I cannot do that. I know I can't do that. I'm absolutely powerless to go on the Internet and not lust. Craig is incapable of that. But being aware of that and having surrendered that and having come close with this God that can save me from that, I know I can go on the Internet. That's the difference. Thank you, Craig. Now, uh, where are you? Where are we? It's kind of a strange session, isn't it? Hearing this kind of stuff. You got any honest reactions before we take the next step? I'm feeling really tender. I'm feeling more present than I was before. Okay, feels more present than he was started hearing Craig's story. Um, Something you said earlier that not for everyone, I'm lost myself that. Um, I think you have to uh, focus for everyone. Everyone might not take it, but it's there for them. That's another way of putting it. Sure, sure. There was another hand here. Oh, um, the issue, the question you raised about getting us sex for the rest of one's life, what's the answer? What's the answer? What's the answer? Give it up. I've given it up myself. Necessary. It, it was necessary for this man at that time before the speakerphone. It was crystal clear. We knew him. I knew him very intimately. I had sponsored him for a long time. I knew him intimately. And uh, it was necessary for that man. He didn't do it. He didn't want to do it. Sex was too important. And if you knew the story of the kind of sex this man was engaged in, you could perhaps understand why it was the most important thing in his life. We have abused sex so terribly and put it in such different forms that it possesses us and it has it's the priority of our life. And he couldn't do it. And um, sex is optional, I can tell you that. I discovered that years ago. I discovered that in my second year of sobriety, the year of abstinence with my wife. Uh, there's a new movement in our culture that nobody hears about. It's 
called The New Celibacy. <clears throat> Gabriel Brown wrote about it. Among, <clears throat> nothing to do with sex addiction, with singles and marrieds alike. And uh, we're discovering some things about that. Uh, now, the thing is, though, where are we today? What I'd like to have us do is just, uh, within one or two minutes, take our card and write down, and we're going to pray before we do this. If I have a surrender, what would it be? If my, What's my top plate? And you might do the one, two, or three, like Craig says, but at least do the one if you feel, and be honest about it, if you don't feel anything, don't write anything. But if you feel something for you that you've got to do, especially if it's impossible, if it's something you can do yourself, forget it. Don't write it down. You know, that's just a New Year's resolution that we can do. <laughs> I see Eric smiling on that one. But anyhow, uh, so let's let's uh, do that. And again, um, uh, just while you're seating, just hold the hand next to you. And we're going to pray. And I'm just going to... Uh, Lord, we just uh, want to thank you for... The person whose hand I'm holding, that I can hold another hand in this impossible outfit, in this impossible talk, in this impossible concept that we're wrestling with, takes us out of this world, doesn't it, Lord? Takes us out of this world. It puts us into another kingdom, and we're not up to it. SA isn't up to it. All of our literature, our leaders, our servants from the very beginning, our meetings cannot give us this. All I can do is point us to the next phase. And we're together now. And you know our hearts. And all we want is to follow you. So we're just going to do our 11th step in our hearts now. We're not going to do a Roy or a Craig or a... Akron 35 or anything else, we're just going to believe that we can and will ask you for the knowledge of your will and the power to carry that out in our next surrender. And we trust you and we believe you as we do this now. Thank you. Amen. Okay. Okay, we're not going to share these. Here's what we're going to do. I believe God is calling three or four people here, perhaps more, to seek out how he may guide you into your Akron experience, your circle, your account, your surrender accountability circle, for your surrender. So that that priority, so that you will have the safe haven, the understanding haven, where you can test God in this thing and see it. It's the only way you're going to do it. This is an action, you see. It's a program of action. We come out of the workshop, we come out of the closet, we come out of all of our sincere feelings. We take an action against our disease, because that's repentance, isn't it? We're not going to know God until we're willing to put, a, put away what we know we have to put away, even if we can't put it away. So, 
uh, that's the prayer of my heart, and I just believe that with all of my heart, that there are one or two or three or four people here. As a matter of fact, uh, after uh, this afternoon, there one of your group here has already uh, set up a, a, a surrender circle and a surrender accountability session that Craig is going to... Uh, going to be in on a very private session that's open-ended, one of these things we've been talking about. So uh, there's no magic to this. There's nothing. It's keep it real simple. Do you have a question? No. No, you didn't have a question. Um, so this is it. Now, do you have any questions? More of a comment. You, you talked about I don't have faith. I'm not a man of faith. Um, if you're a person of faith, you don't have to test God. You can just trust Him because you know it's going to happen. I have to take an action not knowing if it's going to happen or not. I have to. When I gave up my right to lust, I didn't know, you know, if I'd live or not. And when I gave up the right to have sex with my wife, I didn't know what would happen to the marriage. Um, uh, when I gave up my wife to God and started praying that God would send, give her something better than me. See, when I discovered my misconnection with my woman and had to start giving her to God, start praying, give her something better than me, I meant that with all my life, even if it meant another man. She's got to have somebody better than me. Today, she's got something better than the one who was making that prayer, but he ain't there yet. So, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, it all, whatever works for you, whatever works for you. Uh, I believe there's a statement somewhere that says, prove me now herewith. Uh, it's in the Old Covenant somewhere, prove me now herewith. And the promise is, if you do this, I will do this for you. If you'll give here, I will bless you. I think it has to do with tithing. So he says, prove me. And in a sense, we do. Uh, we do. We do. Uh, uh, that in other words, when Abraham took his son out there, he didn't know he might have to kill his son. Any other questions? Yeah. How important is uh, well, uh, Craig and Phoenix—they've been doing it every week in our in the circle I'm in now. Uh, it's been interrupted, and we never had a regular time or day, it was as the need of the person, and we just started praying, give us another, give us another, and then we had somebody go on vacation, another one had to go in the hospital, so it was interrupted, you know, it, it's not regular. Now, in Dayton, Ohio, yesterday in Wheeling, West Virginia, we had Paul from Dayton, who, who will be in this loop that Craig's group is now the, the, the nexus for, uh, they, they do this with newcomers. The orientation session for a newcomer, they're told this very thing. You're going to have, you know, they give them the Amos report right off the bat. This, this is what you're going to have to do to recover. You're going to have to surrender absolutely to God, your right to lust. You're going to have to do this, have a quiet time. You're willing to do that? Okay, welcome to that. I say, man, they're tough. I mean, we're, we're just, Craig and I are kind of just shaking our heads. We're waiting. Well, what's going to happen there, you know? Don't you even refer them to go to the SA meetings? The other meetings, you know, if you're not... And, so, uh, and they're getting some, it turned Dayton around. 
I'm, I'm blown away. I still don't understand. There, you know, there's got to be something wrong here. You've got to be a little more democratic, a little kinder, a little more patient, right? But, uh, so, <laughs> we're at the beginning. We don't know where we're going. And uh, what's it going to be like in Crystal City or, or Baltimore or, or, or D.C. or whatever? We don't know. But uh, somebody's going to start it. Somebody's going to try it. And, 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 and you see where God goes. The beautiful thing about this, there's no Dr. Bob or Bill W. or anybody else here. God and His Spirit are leading. And I believe with all of my heart that the next phase of 12-step recovery is the deeper phase that we're talking about today. And I don't care where it is. If it's in SA or out of SA, God's Spirit is moving. The sexual illness and evil is so profound. The world's spirit of darkness is so profound in our world today that the remedy just has to come. God, you know, the love of God, it just has to be there. And we're the lucky ones. We can test God. You know, we can prove God now here with, for me. And he's never failed me when I've done this. Whenever I've made an absolute, at the end of myself, you know, surrender. It's the beginning of a whole new way of life. I can get better. Any other questions? Uh, when you talk about surrendering sense, are you talking about permanent absence? Or are you talking about giving up the expectation of marital <laughs> Well, I've done all. <laughs> I've done all. Yeah, wherever you are at the time. Um... I recently made a decision that I'm willing not to have sex for the rest of my life, and I'm very, very perfectly happy with that. And my wife, I've discussed this with my wife, and she's happy with that. But there are times I had to uh, be just the opposite. There are times in my recovery I've had to be willing, you know, to have it in different different times. It's very, very personal. Um, uh, I believe that uh, the norm for the human race is that a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. That's the norm. If he's calling you to something else, then he's calling you to something else. I don't know where we are today, but we're so messed up. We're so messed up. Talking about sex, in the 1970s, before they got started, the late 70s, and before and after I was sober, after I was sober in recovery from my lust and sex, I'm 7th and Broadway in downtown L.A., you know, where I used to walk for, for cruising, and here on the 7th and Broadway by Clifton's Cafeteria is a guy, a big black, handsome, young black man wearing a sandwich sign. And the sandwich sign says, big letters, no sex. And there's a whole bunch of scripture verses. And I see he's, he's with a group of beautiful young black people, probably in their 30s, early 40s. And they're, they're together. And I, I, I invite him into Clifton's. We have a cup of coffee and sit down. And I get to know the guy. And it turns out, They don't, you know, they're not in, in any 12-step movement. They've been all the way there and back. And they're just so happy to live celibate, married and single. They were the precursors to Gabriel Brown's book on the new celibacy, I guess. I don't know. And, and, and okay, yeah, go ahead. Well, this, this is, uh, you know, you got to get let, let, let God lead you here with this. Uh, when I went to the international... In January of 2000, you know, I just like I said, Erdroy, and I got really fired up, and I went to the a meeting on abstinence in the marriage. I'm like, well, I'm going to, I'm any length, I'm going to do whatever it takes. So I'm all fired up. I come home with the wife, and like, we got to do this abstinence marriage. This is the way it is. 
And she says, you idiot, I'm trying to get pregnant. <laughs> and I thought, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Probably not going to coincide, is it? So I'm just saying that every individual is unique with their circumstance, where they're at at the moment. And now we have a beautiful baby boy. Okay, so it's just where you're at at that moment. But sex is optional for me today, like Roy said. It is. It's, just, it's, it's optional. I don't think about it. Um, the, I'm, I'm still have a lot of 12-step stuff in me one day at a time. I, I'm still... I, I take it one day at a time. I, I really do. I just... I, I, sex is optional for me today. That's it. Yeah, another question. Um, I've been talking like this. Um, I'm getting idea question. We need to talk about it honestly because we're not going to get anywhere in lust recovery and we're really honest with what is lust recovery. Okay. And in the book, we got a section here on what is victory over lust. And for the first time, I write like this. And this is scary, but we've got to do it. Today, I'll, I'll just... Uh, today, I, uh, my wife and I had a thorough physical seven or eight vials of blood, you know, hundreds of dollars for the blood, everything. She's a homeopathic physician, and she she wants to know all of the test, you know, all of the hormones and everything else. And we go in there, and she says, "Roy, you're 75 years of age. Your testosterone level is abnormally high for your age." And you know, it blows her away, and she she doesn't understand this. But I tell you what, today I can I can. Uh, uh, I mean, it's, 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 got, I'm in adolescence today. I can, maybe I'm about 19. I, I'm able to see the lust worthy image and I'm okay. But, like you're saying, my recovery, well, I'm going to read this. I can, I can read it better. Let's face the facts. Human males and females, as well as those of other animal species, ogle and judge each other's physical attributes and appearance as a matter of course. It's part of our natural biology. We can't change that. Though some of us, religious drunks, I'm putting, interpolating here, go to great lengths to try and turn that instinct off. I don't want to turn my sexual instinct off. I'm more sexual now than I ever was acting out or having sex. I am more sexual now. You know, I can appreciate Sexuality, you know, the, the prostitute uh, the other day in, in the airport. Man, I'm okay, but I'm a male and she's a female and I'm feeling and I'm okay. I can't turn that off. I embrace it. Embrace it. <laughs> God is in my life and the shield is there. Okay. However, something is having to complicate matters. Something has entered our human consciousness which, which creates problems not only with the sexual instinct but the, with our other instincts as well. Instincts gone astray. There's a principle here, you know, but that's in the way. I'm skipping. Um, our dilemma, this is a dilemma, 
we're caught in that strange dilemma of being males. Sorry, girls, this is written. Uh, we've never tried this with women. That's why in the preface I've got a note saying it's sexist language. You know, it, it's, it's to the art, but, but write it so we can, you know, you give us your story. Okay. We're the strange, we're being uh, with our sexual instinct intact, who cannot help noticing and evaluating various physical attributes and uh, degrees of attractiveness as any other males or females would do. I notice everything that you, you, that you notice. I'm not blind <laughs> to the physical attributes that this woman or this man has. But while experiencing our natural sexuality, we can be hit with something unnatural lust. So the question is, can we recover normal sexuality? If so, how can we do so without recovery from the sins which drive it? Resentment, rage, hate, rebellion, envy, fear. Can lust and resentment and our other sins be expelled? Does that mean I won't be tempted anymore? Or does it mean when tempted I won't have to drink? The promise is in the preface of the 12 and 12. AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink. Now, with us, see, you see why I say we're at the new, new beginning of SA? That question? We can't answer the question of what is normal sexuality until we get victory over the obsession of lust. And then we begin to recover something we never had. We begin to become normal sexual human beings, whatever that is. This is tough. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's happening. It's happening. Uh, so, <laughs> where are we, Craig? Where, where are you guys? Any other questions? See, when we get questions like this, that, that really brings us back on the track here, uh, where we're at. Yeah, there's one more. I'm not a man of faith. Uh, it means I'm not a man of faith. It, it means that I'm very weak in faith and, and have almost no faith. Um, and this, uh, to answer your question, I'm going to be very personal. The answer to your question is in my book, Impossible Joy. It's written under a pseudonym, Ron Jay. I can't write it under Roy Kane. It's not an essay book. It's my personal experience in recovery with the Savior. And um, a man of faith, you see, he now he is made unto me wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. I identify with that. That even the faith is not of myself. That's a gift of God. Lest any man should boast. I can't boast of any faith. I can't boast of any faith. I boast of the fact that he has my DNA and was tempted in every single point like as I am and overcame not through his natural self but through his connection with the Father and overcame, he overcame but on the cross, he was made sin. He became sin. How did that happen? That happened before he died. Crucifixion did not make him become sin. 
What happened was in those hours of darkness when we couldn't see his face, when we couldn't stand to look on the face that was transfigured with sin and evil, my lust, my shame, my street sex, my awful rage and hatred. He drank. That was the last temptation of Christ. He drank. And he didn't want to because he knew it would separate him from the Father be impossible. He did that for me. That's why I can bring him in. That's why he's my faith. That's why he's my salvation. That's why he's my shield today. He's the answer. And for me. And so I don't have to be a man of faith. Thank God I don't have to have the self-reliance to make these decisions today. I say, come on in. And so because he became my lust, and did in his soul. Isaiah 52, his soul was made an offering for sin. How can your soul be made an offering for sin without you becoming sin? That's what happened. We trivialize the death of Christ by making a big deal about the crucifixion. Not knowing that what really happened, what separated him from the Father when he cries out, not Father, he doesn't use that name anymore, he cries out, My God! Why have you abandoned me? And that's why. Because I'm there. And all of our sin is there. That's why this same man who has my DNA, who's been raised from that death, who's been raised from that hell, who's been raised victorious, tells me the promise to the Laodicean S.A. Church. The Laodicean stinking people. He, you guys are, aren't, you're, you're, not luke, you're not warm or cold. You're lukewarm, so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. He says, you think you're rich? You think you got this program made? You don't know, Roy, that you're poor and miserable and blind and naked. And so you buy of me gold refined by fire and garments that are white of me. They're not going to be your garments, Roy. They're going to be from me. And then I'm going to give you the greatest promise in the universe. And that is, whenever you hear my voice and the knock on the door, if you open that door, I will come into you and dine with you and you with me. Revelation 3.20, the greatest promise of the universe. And that's what happens in the airport. There she is. Come on in. I open this door. All I have to do is open the door. I used to say, Lord, I never hear your voice. You know, some, some of these saints, they hear your voice and they see. And, and that's not me. I'm not a man of faith. But, oh, that's when you're knocking. And that's when you're calling, right? Okay. And that impossible SA member that you resent, you want to hate right now, whatever. Or the wife, or, 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 or the fear, or there's, you know, the lust, or whatever. Come on in. I don't have to do it. Man, this is the impossible joy. This is the impossible victory. But you know what? What do I have to do to get the junk out of the way so we can come in? You know, that doorway. I mean, first it was locked and bolted. You know all these Manhattan apartments with all the, you know, <laughs> bolts and locks. And man, you know, one surrender at a time. And it keeps getting better. He ain't through with me. Thank God it's never going to end.
Okay, I'll tell you what I tell my dear friends, the Orthodox Jews in Manhattan and in, and, and, and in New Jersey. I'll tell you exactly what they are. Some of their, some of my best friends, they know my story. They know, first of all, that I don't belong to, endorse, or affiliate with any denomination, that I've discovered all of this in recovery. I've discovered my personal relationship with my higher power <laughs> in recovery. Okay, here's what I tell them. You come into this program like me. You're a religious person, right? You believe in the Word of God. You go through, you pray, you, you follow the ritual better than anybody else. I said, when I came into this program like that, my relation to God was wrong. Why? I was a believer. How could it be right when I'm thinking and doing the things I'm thinking and doing? How can my relation to God be right? Well, if my relation to God is wrong, then that relation has to change. How can it change? I'm a believer. I'm doing the things of my religion. It's got to change. You know what we're doing now in Southern California? I don't know why this is happening. Time after time after time recently, the surrender has been, turns out, the guy has to go into religious, open-ended religious abstinence. And while he's doing that, we're saying, do a written fearless, uh, fearless inventory of your relation to God. The first one we did this with, he was kicking and screaming for months, and finally after the last lip, he said, I'm ready, I'll do it. Because he had a position of authority in the church. So he does it. Within two weeks, uh, and he told his church, you know, he stopped going, he stopped practicing and everything. Within two weeks, he called me one day and he said, you know what, I'm doing what you said, examining my relation to God, I'm withdrawing, and in my interpretation, from the religious addiction. He found out he's cursing God in the, in the shower. He's taking, and he winds up cursing. The real relation to God is coming. And so I was, in my religious addiction, kept me from knowing the one. Now, getting back to the Orthodox, here's what I tell him. I don't know what you're going to have to do to get the junk out of the way. You're going to have to make surrender. There's something in the way here. You're going to have to surrender to God. And I say, I quote, I say, you've got to find your relation, your right relation with the Holy One of Israel. That's the same one that I have. At least, you know, I mean, I mean, I have to find, I have to find my relation with the Holy One of Israel. And you're going to, whatever it takes, you're going to have to do that. So, uh, the beautiful thing, the lady is right. Uh, that's why the meetings, that's why this is not an essay meeting. And in your accountability circle, and so when the, when the Jews in Brooklyn or New York, or New York City, you know, they've got, to, they, they've got to be accountable to where they are. The question is, where are you? The question is, where am I? We've had an uh, interesting thing happen in, in our Phoenix accountability group this last month. The last two people that came in and did a surrender, the first one was a minister. And we spent a couple of weeks on him basically trying to get him to come to terms with the fact that he didn't have a true relationship with God based on the actions he was currently doing. And he kept saying, I believe in God. And we're like, well, something's missing. <laughs> and I can relate from like, hey, hey, it's the secret life and I'm doing the actions. So, I mean, I kind of went there. But we throw a pretty wide loop as far as the, the spirituality. The next person we had to do a surrender 
was a confirmed atheist. He spent the last 35 years of his life out to prove that God didn't exist. And these were back to back. <laughs> Whoa, you know, what do you do? So we spent most of that trying to convince him there's some power greater than himself. Because if he had all the answers in his mind with reason and knowledge, why would he be doing this, all the stuff he said he was doing? So he spent two weeks trying to tell a guy that he didn't believe in God, and the other two weeks trying to convince a guy there was a God. You see what I mean? It, it, it's a wide loop. I mean, every person is an individual. you got to take them where they're at, at that time, at that moment. You don't bring in something that they can't handle. I'm not going to tell the atheist you got to believe in Christ. There's no way. I've been in, in, in 12 step movement too long. I, I'm just not going to do that. Uh, you know, step two, power greater than yourself. That's what I'm going to throw out there. But I, I you know, I, I told the minister, well, I don't know if you do. You know, then I, I have, actually, it's easier for me with atheists than ministers, to be honest with you. I, I know where to come from, atheists. You know, I mean, I, I was an agnostic, but. I don't have a, the ministers are the ones that scare me. But see, within the within the group, within our group, see, we have a background in every dimension. We have somebody who's well read and well versed in scripture. We have somebody like me who's weaned on the twelve step movement. God, as you understand God, that's where I come from. We have another guy that they didn't did nothing, you know, neither church or whatever. And we have somebody from all backgrounds, and we rely on them with the individual that comes in to point that out. Okay, that's that's the key. Every person is an individual. You take them where they're at. I've got the most difficulty with Christians. <clears throat> Sorry. Especially the more religious you are as a Christian, <clears throat> the tougher it's going to be for you. <clears throat> that's the way it was with me. I had to leave it all. See, when I left the seminary, left the church, left my family, and bolted and ran and started hell pell mell <laughs> hell mell into 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 the addition and let it go. I left everything. When I came into the program, that's where I was, and I didn't go back to church. I didn't go back to the but you know what? I just was immersed myself in the program and I discovered the one who was saving me from my lust. And in my experience, the most difficult case, you know, we've had a couple of ministers and and um and, and it's difficult. Uh, I believe one of the problems is, is, is what I call religious addiction. And it doesn't matter where you're coming from, what religion you're coming from, whatever that addiction is, it's gonna, it, if it keeps you from your next surrender. Um, any other questions? Uh, I have a problem. Uh, my experience, my experience is that I don't have to be Here, I just want to say one thing real yeah. briefly. Like, again, every, every individual is unique. 
And you come in, you find out where you're really at in your surrender group today, and they will give you their opinion based on where you're at. Okay. But I do want to say, at the end of the night about those surrenders, the minister surrendered on his knees before the group. You know, all knowledge of God, basically. And the atheist did a surrender on his knees with the group, believing, you know, that there's something. I mean, they both did surrenders. So the real thing is, where are you in your lust recovery? That's the thing. Where am I and where are you? If you're not where you're supposed to be, if you're not where you want to be, then you need the examination of what we discussed in the beginning. You need the light of God's word, which comes to me in my circle. If those men, they happen to be surrendered. And I, I need to be open to that light. And that's scary, because I'd rather have somebody read from a book and tell me exactly, you know, read it off, so to tell me I'm okay. There's one more question back there. Religious addiction for me was, I write about it in the joy book. Um, it's all summed up in one word, what I call believism. I was taught that if I believe and do what I'm supposed to do, I'm right with God and I'll go to heaven. And I believed and did what I was supposed to do and I stayed in hell. And so I came to the conclusion with myself that my belief, which happened to be true, which I believed was true, the belief system that I endorsed, I believed was true, but that didn't save me. And that system, I had, I as a pervert, had used that system to shut God out, to shut the Lord of my life out now, to shut out the shield. That still left me in charge. That's the most insidious thing there is. It's the most insidious religion there is. Anyhow, we're going to close and... Um, we, we know this is controversial. We know that at the same time that it's nothing new. All this is is a third step. We're taking the third step apart in this generic phraseology in step three, and we're putting it in slow motion. We're taking the third step so seriously, we're opening ourselves to it in each other's presence. I dare you to do that. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. I'm daring you. Let's say you're one of the religious people. I'm daring you to get a circle of surrendered people and week after week expose what you really are and prove to them that your religion is saving you when you're lost in lust. Because it takes one to know one. The lucky thing is, we're all in the same boat. These guys know me. They know Craig. And they're going to they're gonna see the bullshit in me. And, uh, and they've seen it. They call me on it. That's why they had to say, you know, they had to tell me in the hospital, you're an unbeliever. 
You don't believe in God. So it's a marvelous experience. Have you ever heard of the phrase, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of... You ever heard of that? You mean I can't bear my own burden? Thank God. Man, I can be connected for the first time in my life. A little late. But let, can we hear from the women? Any questions? God bless you all. Yeah. First. <laughs> Next. You get you get three people that are your people, or two. Is that that minimum of three? I'm convinced of that. Get, get your people, your people that know you, that have the fire for something more, and just meet. Read Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. Read this that we're handing out. Keep in contact with me. Start talking what we're going to do, when we're going to meet, how it's going to be open-ended, and then just start a surrender. And we're waiting for the first women's circle to try this, yeah. and then report back and say, is it working? And we're waiting for the first mixed circle. We have the slightest idea if that's going to work. We had a tinkling of it yes, uh, yesterday in Wheeling, West Virginia, where I was in on a circle of surrender with the, the woman doing the surrender, a married woman. Um, in a misconnection, in a in a deep, deep misconnection. You guys have a lot more than we did in Phoenix to go on. Yeah. All we had in Phoenix was one talk from Roy, the essay, and Dr. Bob and the Good Old Times. We didn't have anything else. You don't need anything else. Just the desire. Yeah. You just get get it and do it. Man, what a gift. Thank you for sharing. Okay. Um, I'm just so grateful to be with you guys and to be here today in weakness. Didn't think I could make it today. And to share our stories together with Craig and you guys. Just follow the light that you have today. Be obedient to that light. And he'll guide you. Just a tiny bit of willingness. Just kind of listen for that knock on the door. And it's for you personally. It's for nobody else. The sound of his voice. All you have to do is say, I'm going to open this door right now. I don't know what's there. I'm going to open the door. And you know what? You're going to find him. Okay, we're going to go around and we're going to hold each other's hands and we're going to close this thing around the circle here. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. 
Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.